So today is Father's Day, and no, no doubt many of you came today to hear some great swelling words of wisdom on how to be good fathers. And uh, Pastor Nate assigned me Psalm 13, which is one of the Lamentation Psalms. I was given this note. Last week, Dr. Seifert expounded on Psalms of Lament from Psalm 12. Psalm 13 is also a lament. Rather than reiterating what Dr. Seifert discussed last week, let us say a prayer and go home. <laughs> Signed, Wendy. <laughs> a little background on the guy who wrote this song of lament. David had seven older brothers. His lot in life was the opposite of Joseph. Joseph had 10 older brothers who were shepherds who disliked him intensely. David was the shepherd of his family and his older brothers were not shepherds and they disliked him intensely. But it worked out well for David. He spent uh, most of his time outside admiring God's handiwork, practicing on his lyre, which is kind of a small handheld harp, and composing psalms of praise to God. Some of his most beautiful poetry was written during his days with the sheep. Now it's obvious that David was a pretty sensitive person as most poets and musicians are, but he clearly had some manly warrior skills. For example, he single-handedly killed lions and bears in protecting the sheep, plural, more than once. And he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the colossal Philistine warrior Goliath, you know that story. Later, one of King Saul's acolytes said this about David, the shepherd boy. He said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Now, as the story goes, Samuel, the prophet of God, was sent to the family of Jesse, and he anointed David, the youngest, to be the future king of Israel. He was about 17 years of age at the time. God directed Samuel past the seven older brothers, picked David. Quite an honor, and I think a little scary for a teenager. Well, things went south for David in a hurry. The reigning king, Saul, grew insanely jealous of David and kept trying to kill him. Twice, he tried to nail him to the wall with a spear. Failing that, he eventually sent the palace guard after him, chased him all over the country for 14 years trying to get rid of him. And even worse, the cities that David and his band of men protected from invading marauders turned on him. And when he sought refuge in the priestly city of Nob, Doeg, an Edomite, one of the servants, squealed on him, and King Saul ordered him to kill 80 priests and their families. And David was pretty sick over that. He took responsibility for that. Perhaps it was during those terrifying years that David penned this song of tears before us, Psalm 13. How long, O God, before you make good on your promise? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Or maybe it was after he became king and his son Absalom tried to take the kingdom from him by force, drove him out of town, occupied his palace, and did it all on the advice of David's closest counselor and friend, Ahithophel. Those are tough times. In fact, on that occasion, David was rushing out of town with his band of men a nasty man related to King Saul pelted him with rocks and called down curses on him, and one of David's soldiers wanted to take the guy's head off. But a very dejected David responded, don't. Who knows? Maybe I deserve it. Or maybe it was that night while sitting in a field in front of a small fire gazing into the heavens that he composed this sorrowful lament. It falls into three stanzas, each two verses. 
there's verses one and two, a complaint, verses three and four, an appeal, and then verses five and six, an expression of hope. Now here's how one version translated the first stanza, verses one and two. How much longer, Lord, will you forget about me? Will it be forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I be confused and miserable all day? How long will my enemies keep beating me down? Now David didn't know it at the time, but he was expressing the cry of every believer at one time or another. God promised Abraham a son in his old age. He waited 25 years. Don't you think that after a while he wasn't crying out to God, how long? Joseph was supposed to see his family bowing down to him at some point in his life, but instead he was sitting in Egyptian prison far from home, crying out to God, how long? Moses knew that he was supposed to play a special role among God's people, Israel, but instead he's pushing 80 years old. The last 40 years of his life, he's been shepherding stinking sheep under a hot Middle Eastern sun for 40 years. And don't you think he wasn't appealing to God? Have you forgotten me? Elijah the prophet prayed that it wouldn't rain on King Ahab's wicked rule for three years, and it didn't. Finally, he faced down the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, and God gave him an astonishing victory. The wicked queen Jezebel responded by promising to kill him by this time tomorrow. And he ran for his life deep into the wilderness and cried out to God, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Job, whose heart was pure toward God and obeyed him to the best of his ability, suddenly lost everything, including his health. And as the days turned to weeks and the weeks to months and the months to years, don't you think he wondered, how long must I be confused and miserable all day? Listen, these are people who love God. They served God. They obeyed God. And yet the heavens were silent. That God was nowhere to be found. And it hurt. By the same token, we dedicate our precious babies to God. We raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, like we're supposed to. And for some reason, they decide they hate us, and they, and they lie about us, and they refuse to let us see our grandkids. And with broken hearts and trembling tears, we cry out to God as the years pass, how long, O Lord, before you hear my cry? More than a few of us have had coworkers jealous of us and tried to get us fired. We've had bosses who disliked us and made our jobs insanely difficult. And as time drags on, we wonder, oh Lord, how long before you vindicate me? Mother-in-laws and father-in-laws try to break up the marriages of their children. Men and women whose spouses divorce them and fill their children's minds with terrible things against the other parent. If only you do. And perhaps you do know what it's like, night after night, crying out in defeat and frustration, where are you, God? Why don't you answer me? Now come with me to an olive garden just outside Jerusalem. It's late at night, pitch dark. Jesus is there, and he took three of his closest friends deeper into the garden. One of his friends at that very moment was rounding up a band of soldiers to seize him. Jesus told his three, wait here and watch and pray. And he moved a short distance away and gazed deep into the cup of suffering before him. The human Jesus prays, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Sweat pours off his brow. His groans fill the garden, but no one's listening. His friends are asleep. Even the sympathy of his close friends denied him in this terrible hour. 
The long night drags on, an angel is dispatched from heaven to strengthen him for what's coming. He prays all the more earnestly. He's in agony, and his sweat is like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He wakes his friends, begs them to pray, and then goes back to the same spot and prays again. Time stands still as he wrestles, not so much with the tidal wave of suffering about to break over his head, but the dreadful abandonment of the Father. Once more, he seeks out his friends. They blink at him in the darkness. Mark tells us they, they knew not what to answer him. So he walked slowly back to that tear-drenched spot alone, and for a third time he prayed, saying the same words. You know what that cup was, don't you? It was a cup of suffering organized by the religious leaders, the priests, the scholars, the teachers of Israel, who should have welcomed him. But instead, they hated him. They were the bitterest of enemies, and they sought to get rid of him. And no doubt, during that long night, the Psalm of David, Psalm 13, flowed through his mind. When you get to the end of your rope, when you feel abandoned, alone, without options, when your enemies are stronger than you and seeking to ruin you, remember, our great high priest knows that place well. David felt that the God of heaven had abandoned him, worse, forsaken him. How long will you hide your face from me? Asaph, who was the worship leader in Israel, he knew the pain of God's silence. He put this in Psalm 77, I pray to you, Lord God, I beg you to listen. In days filled with trouble, I search for you. At night, I tirelessly lift my hands in prayer, refusing comfort. When I think of you, I feel restless and weak. Because of you, Lord God, I can't sleep. I'm restless. I can't even talk. I think of times gone by of those years long ago. Each night my mind is flooded with questions. Have you rejected me forever? Won't you be kind again? Is this the end of your love and your promises? Have you forgotten how to have pity? Do you refuse to show mercy because of your anger? You know, these psalms of lament make us uncomfortable because they articulate things that we aren't sure should even be said out loud. They strip off the veneer and they reveal the pain of the human condition, and there's so many of them. Psalm 10, verse 1, why are you far away, Lord? Why do you hide yourself when I'm in trouble? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Psalm 88, I cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O God, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? A lot of tears in the book of Psalms. But somehow we have come to think that weeping and lamenting to God are signs of weakness. We feel like we're complaining or, or worse, whining to the God of the universe who really wants us to grow up and deal with it. Churches have become places where believers engage in denial and cover-ups and bottling up pain and worshiping behind a mask. How many times in prayer meetings with people who are barely holding it together, they're living with brokenness and heartache and sorrow, and yet they insist, oh, everything's good. Uh, no tears here. My faith is strong. Because we're afraid if we admit that we're hurting, we'll lose faith. That's why we need these laments. 
We need them dearly. We need them because there's so much pain around us. Physical pain, emotional, mental, spiritual pain, your pain, your friend's pain, the pain of the new people who step into our midst timidly, wondering if anybody else in this place has pain and will they accept me if they know how troubled I really am. We also need these laments because they show us how to be honest with God. How, we can, how in the world can we be real in our worship if all we do is sing happy praise songs and give testimonies about answered prayer when we know full well that other people have prayed 999 times for relief and God still hasn't seen fit to answer. And we need these laments for the integrity of our Christian faith. We need them because our authenticity requires us to confess our failures, acknowledge our hurt, and pour out our pain. Think of how much healthier it would be if we could approach the Lord's table with a box of Kleenex. This isn't weakness. This isn't complaining. We lament like David in a context of trust. We express our pain, we raise our questions, we give feeling to our feelings of abandonment, but always in the context of faith. Yes, I know God exists. I know he loves me. I know he cares for me. I know he will never let me go. And because we know all that to be true, we can be honest with God. So back to David. He's been brought low by his feelings. Verse 2, oh, how long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? Maybe, maybe you can't quite relate because you've never faced this, this level of sorrow, but you might. Job said man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. David was there. Can't eat, can't sleep, can't think of anything else. He's got this gnawing ache inside. His feelings have brought him low. And so of his foes. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? He said, whether it was Saul with 3,000 cracked crack troops or Absalom with his 3,000 soldiers, the enemy was relentless and powerful and invisible. The entire resources of the nation were being harnessed not to defeat the Philistines, but to hunt and hound David. There was a time when this was my psalm, right alongside David. Now, nobody's trying to kill me, but they might as well have. I had served a megachurch for 17 years as an assistant pastor, and the senior pastor left abruptly. Since I was the senior associate, I became the interim pastor. And for a few weeks, everything went smoothly until one service, a deacon came up to me after I got done preaching and informed me that a group of 40 church members were meeting in a downstairs classroom, praying and strategizing on how to get rid of me. They were convinced I was an apostate, a heretic, a messenger sent from Satan to destroy the church. And if that wasn't bad enough, he went on to say, your parents are among the leaders. My parents were praying that God would open my eyes to the evil I was doing and even praying that God would save my wicked soul because I couldn't possibly be a Christian. Six of our 22 deacons were in that group. One of them was my dad. And the spokesman for the group was the chairman of the deacons, a very, very close friend, a man I had worked closely with for years. 
The truth of the matter was that since I had taken over leadership, I had been on my knees with the rest of the pastoral staff, praying, seeking counsel, perusing scripture together. We took the weight of the church on our shoulders. We sought the face of God for wisdom. And now the church leadership was lying about us, about me, slandering, sowing discord, disrupting meetings, and making terrible accusations. I, I was shattered. I was crying out to God. A God I thought I knew. Why, why are you letting them do this? What have I done to deserve this? How have we as a staff offended you? What sins do we need to confess? Oh God, what do we do? Help us. I felt utterly abandoned by God. I was trying to be God's kind of man. I, I was trying to lead in a way that I thought was pleasing to God. I was looking for his blessing on the search for a new pastor. And this is what I got. And during that dark night of the soul, I came to a place where I prayed, God, just... Take me home. I never saw this coming. And I wasn't prepared for it. And by the way, neither was David. For the first two verses of the psalm, David is crying out to God almost incoherently, stomach and knots, how long are you going to let this go on? Then in verses 3 and 4, he made his appeal. Look at verse 3. He said, consider... Literally, look at me and answer me. You know how sometimes you feel like people are looking right past you, that you're invisible? Like, I'm right here. David felt that way. So he pleads, oh, God, look at me and answer me. And again, sometimes people can't hear a word you say. Wives feel that way a lot, I know. My wife told me that we had to have a talk one time. And so I went out to the kitchen table, and she was sitting there with a tape recorder. And I said, what in the world is that for? And she said, later, when you say, we never talked about this, I can play it back for you. <laughs> well, D David felt that way. So he pleads, look at me and answer me. I've been begging and pleading and asking and praying. I feel like you're not listening. I feel like you don't even see me down here. So he's obviously fighting despair to the point that he had just about lost hope. The cry, oh Lord, light my eyes, is exactly that. It's an appeal for hope. Oh God, I need some encouragement, lest my enemies prevail over me and kill me. It says in verse 4, David's eyes were dimmed with discouragement, despair, trouble keeps piling up, enemies keep nipping in his fields. And where is the God who's supposed to be his rock, his refuge, his strong tower, his help in times of trouble? He says, oh God, give me a reason to be encouraged. Light my eyes up with hope. And then in verse 4, he reminded God of what was going to happen if, he, if God didn't do something. You see, there, there was a day when God told Moses to stand aside. I'm sick and tired of all of Israel's idolatry. I'm going to destroy them all and start over again. And Moses begged God, don't do that, because all the nations of the earth know that these people belong to Jehovah. And what are they going to think of Jehovah if you kill all your people? Back in that day, all the nations, all the tribes had their own gods, and they attributed all of their success to their god, and they worshiped their god, and they, and they served their god, and they sacrificed to their god in hopes that when they went into battle, their god would be stronger than the other nation's god. And the god of Israel had proved to be a very powerful god. He had destroyed all of their enemies all the way during the 40 years of wandering out of Egypt and into the Promised Land and allowed them to conquer the Promised Land. 
Rahab, she had heard about the God of Israel. She, she was in Jericho. They had their own God, but she heard about the God of the Israelites, and she just said, I'm going with that God. And God preserved her. So now, David is saying, Lord, by the, you, know, you appointed me to be God, to be king. You know, I, I, I'm your chosen vessel, and, 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 and I've tried to give you all the honor and the glory. I've tried to talk about you. I've tried to give credit for everything. And all these people know that, that I worship you and serve you. And if, and if all these people kill me, what are they going to think of God, of you? Well, it certainly wouldn't give anybody reason to trust him. If he can't protect his dedicated servant, then he can't be a very powerful God or good. In fact, David's enemies were even mocking him, claiming that God didn't think he was worth saving. In Psalm 3, how many are my foes? How many rise against me? Many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. So can you see the progression here in this Psalm 13? In the first two verses, David complains to God, how long? It's a cry of despair, loneliness, and abandonment. Verses 3 and 4, he appeals to God, look at me, answer me, give me hope. And then look at verses 5 and 6. He recovers his hope. The tone changes. Apparently, apparently God did give light to his eye. But I have trusted you. I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm looking, I'm reading through this and I'm wondering, how in the world did David swing so suddenly from utter despair to such confidence? Had his circumstances changed? Had, uh, had Saul called off his bloodhounds? Had a new shipment of weapons arrived? Uh, no, nothing changed really. But David can sing. He can sing because he remembered something. He remembered something about God. He remembered God does not change. He'd done mighty things in the past, and he's not lost any of that power. And what he did before, he could do again. And David told himself, no doubt he will. So you see what happened here? David, David lifted his eyes from his dark, troubling circumstances. He stopped dwelling upon the dangers that he was facing, and he looked back. He remembered the past over and over again in the Psalms of Lament. David cried out to God in desperation and fear. And then after a while, he remembered the great acts of God in the past, the deliverance from Egypt, the most powerful military force in the ancient world. God destroyed them and let his people out and the collapse of Jericho and victories over the Philistines and even Goliath. And as he pondered all these things, his soul was quieted. In fact, in Psalm 3, he went on to say this, um, I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Absalom is still out there with 3,000 soldiers waiting for the sunrise so they could attack again. David's in exile from Jerusalem, hiding in the wilderness with his small contingent of men. But he fortified his soul in God, and his fear and anxiety turned to confidence. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm wondering, why in the world was God so hard on David? Or for that matter, on Paul, too. You know, Paul suffered horribly from the time that he embraced Christ until he was finally executed in Rome. Well, listen, the Bible from the beginning to the end is a tale of suffering and woe. Nobody in the Bible ever saying, I just feel like something good's about to happen. Because life, life here on earth is hard. Well, for one thing, it's a sin-cursed world. It's a principle of corporate solidarity. We're a part of this world, and so what happens to the world is going to happen to us. We're going to experience, right along with the world, betrayal, loss, loneliness, heartache, abuse, even violence. 
right along with everybody else. There's going to be bosses who resent us and want us gone. There'll be friends who turn on us and seek to discredit us. There'll be people who have a purple hatred toward us because we're Christ followers. But instead of rage and bitterness, we follow the example of Christ. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the Father. And when Christian families are the victims of violence, we demonstrate the spirit of Christ to everybody in the courtroom. As we're not screaming for vengeance, we're not out for blood, we don't want groveling. We're actually hoping and praying that the people who did this to us will find forgiveness in Christ and know the way of peace. And then there's this, Jesus warned his followers, God's people are gonna be hated. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're also gonna persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now that, now that I have come, they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that nobody else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and the father. But the word that is written in their law must be filled. They hated me without a cause. And they're going to hate us without a cause. And if that isn't enough, he added this. In John 16, he said, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. And then Paul tried to warn Timothy, he said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And John added, don't be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. Well, you read these verses and it doesn't sound like Christianity is a day at the beach for us. No, no green lights down Broadway, no, no rose gardens to drink tea in. But back to King David. So why did David suffer so much? Well, here's the thing. God was preparing David to rule his people. He was anointed when he was a wet behind the ear 17-year-old. And through this suffering, through these trials, through these heartaches, God refined him, stretched him, and reminded him continually of where his wisdom and ability came from. And without those hardships, David would have been a disaster like every other king in the ancient world was. It was the suffering that made him the greatest king that ever lived. It was the suffering that made him a man who pleased God and whom God was pleased to bless. Did you know there's 54 chapters in the Bible devoted to David? That, that's more than the, even the apostle Paul. David was a man after God's own heart and it was the suffering that got him there. And then finally, there's this. Suffering here leads to glory there. Paul wrote, for this light momentary affliction. Paul, after what he was going through, you should read it in, 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 in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about all the shipwrecked and beaten and all this kind of stuff. And he says, for this moment, light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. You know, in his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructed his followers to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile. If they take your tunic, give them your cloak as well. Pray for those who persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of evil things against you. And then later on, he, he, he warned, he says, all men will hate you for my name's sake. And after that, after we endure suffering, 
we will receive a reward. So it's pretty clear that uh, being a Christian is never going to be easy. And our lamentations are never a surprise to God. In fact, the psalmist said in Psalm 56, he says, you have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. Are they not written in your book? Now, more than a few of us came in here this morning with pretty heavy hearts. Maybe the family dynamics, I don't know what's going on. Might be an enemy trying to take you down. Might be a son or a daughter who's not spoken to you in 20 years. Might be a parent who makes it very clear they wish you'd never been born. Might be a neighbor who, for some reason, is bitter against you. The stories are legion. And behind, behind it all is the evil one who hates God, and because you're made in the image of God, he hates you too. And he wants to make your life as miserable as he possibly can. So you might be lonely. You might be scared. You might be confused. You might be desperate. But never forget, you're not alone. God does see you. His ear is tuned to your pleas. And when the time is right, he will act. In the meantime, remind yourself that you are a beloved child of the Almighty himself. Now, here, here's how the Apostle Paul prayed for you. He said, when I think of the wisdom and scope of God's plan, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and earth. I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, he will give you mighty inner strength through his Holy Spirit. I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your hearts as you trust in him. May your roots go down deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love really is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is so great you will never fully understand it. Then you'll be filled with the fullness of life and the power that comes from God. Now glory be to God. By his mighty power at work within us, he is able to accomplish infinitely more than we could ever dare or ask or hope. So do you want to know the end of the story? Well, God did hear David's complaint, his appeal, and his expression of faith. Yes, and when the time was right, and when David was finally ready, God did act on his behalf, and God did destroy his enemies, and shut the mouths of those who were slandering him, and established his throne. And God poured out his blessings on his rule for 40 years, and at the end, he said this about, about uh, David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. I can assure you that the God of David is still alive and well today. He's not changed one iota. My professor in seminary put it this way, never doubt in the dark what God is showing you in the light. We're sitting here today in the light. We're looking at the word of God in the light. And what you learn today is supposed to be a resource when the darkness closes over your head. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning thankful that you have caused these psalms to be written for us. My heart goes out to those who are here this morning, Lord, who are already in the dark night of the soul. 
And may these verses minister to them and give them hope and encouragement. And for the rest of us, Lord, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month. But I pray, Lord, that you would fortify us this morning and help us to do as David or, or Paul urged us to do, to drive our, our roots down deep, deep, deep into your word and fortify our souls so we can remain strong and faithful like David did in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. And so, Lord, we give ourselves to you for this. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us not to forget, take lightly these things, but, Lord, drive them deep into our souls so that we might be women, men and women after God's own heart. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.